Hello and welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes for the week ending May 8th, 2020. This is videocast episode number 29 and podcast episode number 19. So I'd like to kick off an exciting week and uh, start off as we always do. like to thank uh, with some of our media spots, thank uh, Greta Wall for having me on the One American News Network. Her show is called Wall to Wall, and thank you to Greta, and thank you to Lindsay Oakley. Uh, they had me on the show to discuss, if you recall, uh, the Warren Buffett annual meeting, and we're going to talk a lot about that on the video cast this week. And the specific subject she wanted to cover was why he dumped the airlines and what were the implications of that. And we'll go into that a little bit. I'll cover a couple quick things here. You know, it was a little ironic. You know, Warren is known for be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. And I think it left a lot of the people with a value tilt uh, investing mindset like myself um, a little sideways after the annual meeting because he seemed very conservative. And if you looked at the actions, keeping $137 billion of cash and you know, not buying a lot of stocks um, when the market was down 35 and some of his high-quality companies were down 50%. Uh, it was a little surprising. But he explained, as far as the airlines go, um, why he was thinking along the, those veins. And, and namely, he was afraid of what had hurt him in the past owning airlines. Berkshire had owned airlines numerous times before and not had positive outcomes. And the key thing, he used the analogy of 9-11, where it took a couple years for demand to recover. And he was afraid that there was going to be overcapacity again, and that's uh, generally the death knell. But more than anything else was he was most afraid as an equity holder and not a debt holder of all the dilution. And he said that the major four would have to raise between 8 to $10 billion each of, of debt and equity, and the dilution concerned him. Obviously, they'd also be limited on on their ability to buy back, which was an attractive reason that he got into them to start with. So um, that was basically the takeaway. And you should watch that. You can watch it at the OANN.com website, um, which they were nice to post it there. Or you can just watch it on our site here under the featured on um, button right here. And that'll come up for you to watch. So again, thank you to Greta and Lindsay. Uh, do check that out. And and there was quite a lot of things covered on that uh, segment. It was about six minutes. Uh, so you definitely want to check into that. But um, we want to get to the other stuff. Second, I want to thank um, Achil Sezen and Simon Demikin of Bloomberg TV in Turkey for having me on yesterday morning and really enjoyed getting on with Achil again and discussing the unemployment report, which we're going to go into. At that point, we were discussing ADP and continuing claims. Today, we have new numbers that were a little bit better. Those two reports missed expectations, today exceeded expectations, but certainly nothing to uh, write home about in terms of uh, we have some serious numbers to deal with in the short term. Uh, he also we discussed the strong dollar, we discussed the stimulus package going forward, and we discussed the country reopening, all of which we'll get to 
in this video cast podcast. So again, thank you to Achil and Simon for having me on yesterday morning. You can also watch that under the featured on button right on the website and click that button. Uh, last one I want to thank is uh, is Nividita C and Meta Singh for including me in their Reuters article this week. It was on an update yesterday, uh, right after bad continuing claims number. Uh, they gave me a call and they said, well, why is the market up? What's going on? And the point that I made was that the bad news is looking through the rearview mirror the market's starting to sniff out that people are getting back to work slowly, demand is gonna recover, and all this extra stimulus is gonna to lead to growth levels maybe much higher than expected. And we'll talk about that a lot on this uh, video cast and podcast. So thank you again to Nividita C and Meta Singh for including me in your article. So now down to the article of the week which we put out on Thursday morning, the chain smokers don't let me down stock market and sentiment results. Uh, we kicked it off with this interesting hopping car that they have in the video with the lyrics, don't let me down. So we've run a long way. Uh, trough to recent peak, I think was about 34.8% off the S&P and the market continues to climb the wall of worry. Uh, so, you know, we got to a point here where we've been digesting those gains for the last uh, week, week and a half going sideways as the market uh, plots out its next move. And looking at the strong close today, it was pretty darn impressive. I, I think the market is starting to see the country reopening and uh, a lot of positive things to come from that. So we will uh, check those off as, as we go through uh, the next few items. So first off, I want to spend a lot of time on the Warren Buffett shock. So effectively, most people came out of the annual meeting on Saturday with a view that Warren Buffett was pessimistic. Uh, on the one hand, he said, uh, always bet on America for the long term, the American magic and the American tailwind will prevail. And he walked through all these historical examples of the Civil War deaths, the um, Spanish flu, the Great Depression, uh, World War II, etc., etc. And we always bounced back and came back stronger than ever. So that was really good. But I think what people focused on was the fact that he didn't purchase much stock. I think he net purchased like 1.6. He sold 6.4 billion, now $8 billion of airlines. He bought back like 1.6 or $1.7 billion worth of stock. Um, and I think in that slideshow, people got spooked because he emphasized that if you bought at the wrong time during the Great Depression, you would wait 21 years to get even. So I'm all for long-term investing, but I don't think anyone wants to wait 21 years to get even on an investment and with depression-like numbers coming in in the short term in terms of the short-term jobless and unemployment numbers, <coughs> I think it let, left people uh, a bit frazzled after watching the uh, annual meeting despite the long-term, don't bet on margin, buy a diversified index fund. But seeing that he didn't, his actions in Q1 did not match his words uh, and then there was an emphasis on that 
Great Depression period in his presentation, people didn't really know what to take away coming out of the meeting, especially when he sold at such a loss on the airlines, he just bailed out rather than waiting for skies to get a little bit bluer and then peeling out of his position if he wanted to at that point. So um, what I'm going to cover here is something that I haven't heard from any media, and that is there may be more reasons to interpret Buffett's message as bullish than bearish. And the, you know, it was looking at some of the things he said and why he may have done the things that he did. So first and foremost, what was reported was the fact that he said if a good deal came to him on Monday, this was on Saturday, he would be willing to put a large chunk of money to work right away, 30, 40, 50 billion dollars, he would do a deal today. So that was a sign of confidence. Uh, obviously, he needs the right terms and he needs the right price, etc. He also mentioned that he had to keep reserves as he could not quantify the potential knock-on exposure in a worst-case scenario. This comes to his insurance book, and there's a lot of opacity in that insurance risk and some of the contracts that Ajit writes that um, we don't know the magnitude of what the exposure is, number one, and number two, uh, what it could be, the knock-on effect. So he's always looking at the worst case scenario. One thing leads to another, leads to another. I'm sure in his mind, he's thinking, what if we have a resurgence globally and we have to shut down again? So my takeaway from what he was saying in terms of having to keep cash reserves, the fact that he was willing to do a maximum deal of $50 billion, and he always likes to keep at least 20 to $30 billion free no matter what, because he doesn't like to rely on the kindness of strangers. He used that, that famous line uh, from a streetcar named Desire. So if you do kind of do the math, he's basically saying, if I'd, I'd be willing to invest as much as $50 billion, um, I, I always have to have 20 to $30 billion. So basically he's saying, I think my worst case insurance exposure could be over $50 billion. And so when people look at the 137 billion and say, why isn't Warren doing anything? It's not really all of his cash. It's, it, it, it's cash that some has to be held back for this new exposure that can't be quantified. And you saw that across the insurance sector stocks in the last few weeks that they've been trading down dramatically because since no one can quantify what the exposure is going to be, both actual exposure and litigation expense relative to that exposure, people are selling first and asking questions later and assuming the worst until proven otherwise. So that's also what Warren's doing. So when you say, well, why didn't he buy a ton of stocks? Well, I think one, he wants to keep 30 to 50 billion in case a good deal comes along. Two, he's got to keep 50 billion for the insurance reserve. And three, he always needs 20 to 30 billion in cash to sleep at night. So um, there were also anecdotes flying around this week about uh, portfolio managers at big insurers that were told not to put new money to work in the markets because they couldn't quantify the insurance risk to coronavirus related claims and litigation. So I think Warren's reluctance to aggressively buy at the bottom may be more of a statement about his view on his insurance exposure than it necessarily was a statement on 
the equity markets. The other thing you got to keep in mind is like, why wouldn't he have bought Wells Fargo, his favorite, you know, favorite bank down 50% it was in the month of March, peak to trough. Why wouldn't he have bought Jamie Dimon's stock, uh, JP Morgan, which he loves, which was down 42%. Why wouldn't he have bought Bank of America, which was down, you know, something in that in that range as well. For some of them, he's already at his 10% limit. So we cover this each quarter when he sells some bank stocks. It's not because he doesn't like the banks anymore. It's because he has to lighten up to stay below the regulatory threshold that he wants to be under. So he couldn't take advantage of it in the case of the major holdings in the banks, etc. And he had limitations in terms of money he had to hold back for potential insurance exposure. So uh, the next thing is he acknowledged was, as I mentioned, the amount of litigation that's going to be generated out of what's happening, let alone what may happen. And that's what why he's holding back that 50 to 80 billion above the 50 that he's willing to put to work. Um, and he's trying to do, so, you know, he couldn't really do the banks because he's already at 10%. He wants to keep money in case a good deal comes along because <clears throat> this happens like once every 10 years. So he wants to be prepared. Um, and then the rest is cash he needs and insurance exposure he needs. So the, the next thing is he was also just getting over. He took a $54.5 billion hit to his portfolio in Q1. So a lot of the stocks that he was in got hit well more than the rest of the market. It dramatically outperformed to the downside. He had obviously big airline exposure, uh, bank exposure, um, uh, consumer credit exposure with American Express, etc. So, you know, when he's got risks on both sides of the portfolio, the assets and the liabilities, it's it, it can also in some sense be paralyzing in that regard. So that was something that uh, was was not really talked about in the commentary about the meeting, but has to be accounted for. <clears throat> Second thing that was not uh, talked about a lot, but he made an important point of it, was that many of his shareholders had the majority of their wealth in Berkshire stock. So they've been longtime shareholders and become have become very wealthy because of it and because of Warren. And a large number of those people that are super wealthy from Berkshire stock are members of his family. Uh, his sister, I, I sat with at Goritz several years ago at the um, annual meeting. Um, so he's at an age and his family members and many of his shareholders that their wealth is tied up in the stock. And he emphasized how seriously he takes the weight of this responsibility because these people are not at the age where they can earn it back. And he emphasized that he may not be able to beat the S&P over the next 10 years and has had trouble doing it uh, in, in recent history. And that, that's for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, the law of large numbers is in play in that when he was younger in his career, he was smaller, nimbler, and dealing in much more inefficient pockets of the market. Um, and he could aim to shoot the lights out. Now he's dealing, if he wants to put 30 and $50 billion chunks to work to move the needle on the stock, 
he's going after assets that are really efficiently priced and highly coveted. You, you got to consider the amount of dry powder now he's competing with private equity. Um, and these are the type of deals that people want to put money to work. These are not small, illiquid deals that you can get inefficiency in the pricing. So that's another thing that's holding him back that, you know, the I, I heard a figure that to date, the returns he's generated is 91,000%. So no one's ever going to beat him over the long term. He's the legend. He's the oracle. It's just now he has explicitly stated he has a different set of objectives and he's running it more like a utility slow and steady than the things that he did or was able to do when he was building the company and that was abundantly clear that's part of a, a size issue you see it with hedge funds small hedge funds can shoot the lights out if they're good when they get to larger and larger size they just become asset gatherers gatherers largely with a few exceptions it's much harder to outperform because you're dealing in much more efficiently priced larger cap stocks that are you know have 20 some odd sell side analysts on each name uh, and there's not really much edge you're able to draw other than being able to put size to work in short periods of dislocation like we just had in March. Um, and the most important factor that wasn't discussed, although Andy Serwer of that runs Yahoo Finance did tweet it out during the meeting. He was the only one that hit on this and I retweeted it. But the most important factor that I think impacted Buffett's ability to buy material amounts of stock and or execute a large deal is that unlike 2008 to 2009, where he had no competition and he was the lender of last resort, he was able to uh, lend money to AIG, to Goldman Sachs, et cetera, equity with, uh, preferred with warrants like he did in the Oxy deal recently, um, is that in March, the Federal Reserve and the U.S. Treasury stepped in with what's now over $9 trillion of stimulus, aid, and liquidity before Warren Buffett had any chance to act, okay? So he said in the meeting, uh, and you know, breaking down that, so you, you've got $2.8 billion in the CARES Act, direct aid and, and loans with the PPP. You have the multiplication of that through the Fed and Treasury working together through the uh, 13A exclusion in the Federal Reserve Act, where they're going to leverage $485 billion of the 2.8 trillion into four trillion dollars of the main street lending program it's a facility for consumer credit for mid-sized businesses and for municipalities so that's uh 6.8 and then you've had the fed increase their balance sheet by about two and a half trillion dollars over the last uh, month and a half so 7.8.8 you're over nine and we're now going to get another stimulus package with the employment numbers being what they were this week. The Senate comes back on Monday, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So, um, so effectively what he said was the phone started to ring in early to mid-March. And then when the Fed stepped in in the third week of March, his phone literally stopped ringing. So the good news is the Fed and Treasury backstopped the market and Warren Buffett acknowledged Chairman Powell for being as effective in this circumstance as Paul Volcker, who is a legend, uh, was in the early 80s. The bad news is because of that action, 
Warren's phone stopped ringing within days after it started ringing. So hence, no deals were done. The government beat him to the table this time, which is really, really good. And I've talked about that many times over the last few weeks um, in terms of the magnitude of what they're doing and how uh, this time, rather than wait, you know, as they're seeing the plate fall off the table, rather than waiting for it to crash and break into a thousand pieces all over the floor and spend three to five years gluing it all together like they did in 2008, um, they now see the plate falling off the table and they've put the most cushy, bouncy trampoline in the history of government policy underneath the table so that as the uh, plate falls, like we're seeing the economic numbers, we can bounce back and recover very, very quickly and put the plate back on without having to spend years gluing it all together. And that's one thing you see in the jobs numbers this week. Uh, and today they reported 70% of those uh, were furloughed workers. So they're expected to be at least 70% temporarily unemployed and go, go right back to work, which is a very, very big deal. So, um, the other aspect uh, that we've covered quite a bit is that the magnitude of the economic contraction, if you take the worst case scenario from the C Congressional Budget Office that is expecting GDP to fall 5.8 percent in 2020, that's a, on a round numbers, $20 trillion economy, that's about $1.2 trillion, let's round it up to $1.5 you know, $9 trillion of asphalt to fill a $1.5 trillion pothole, we're going to have, and we're going to get another trillion dollar stimulus. So let's say an extra eight and a half, nine trillion dollars of money in circulation, stimulus aid and liquidity. And we're going to really start to feel the effect of that as demand comes back. Demand is defined by people going back to work, you're going to see increased demand for energy, increased demand for consumer products, increased demand across the board. And that's when you're going to see that that velocity start to kick in and you're saying, oh my goodness, we've got an extra $9 trillion. And that's why I've been saying for weeks that we could wind up with growth rates starting in Q4 and certainly in first half of next year that would far exceed anything we would have seen had we not had coronavirus because we wouldn't have $9 trillion of extra liquidity circulating um, and pent up demand all coming together at once. So I think we have the cocktail for some really serious growth. We just have to get through the trough now and deal with obviously the human struggle and tragedy um, and the economic struggle and psychological struggle from shelter in place. But we're, we're coming through and I do feel like a light, a light switch flipped um, yesterday. So, there was something about yesterday where it, the sense was just like people are done, you know, in the sense that like, I think society has said we made the um, shared sacrifice for the last two months to protect those most at risk. And that was the right thing to do. And now we're just going to, you know, get about our business safely, slowly and securely. But I think societally, we are willing to accept a modest spike up in the mortality rate in the short term. Uh, because the cost-benefit analysis in two months ago, the benefits were in sheltering in, at place, and two months later, the benefits are now skewed to just going back to work and deal with the short-term spike in mortality. If more people, you know, if we get a spike up in, in the death rate because more people will be exposed, 
the curve has been flattened. We have to accept that risk. We have to take responsibility, wear masks, be safe, social distance, do all that stuff. But people just want to get onto it. And we're seeing that now in the demand coming back. So I've been talking demand, demand, demand for three weeks. Um, here's the percentage change in visits to retail locations. This is from Fundstrat. You're seeing already, this was uh, about a week ago already, gas stations, grocery, retail, automotive, pharmacy, restaurants are up, clothing's up. People want to get out. They want to get back to it. Um, <laughs> tired of cooking at home. So hotel occupancy rates ticked up a little bit, which was surprising and nice to see. Uh, that's from str.com. You can view it at the site. This was the most important for me. I talked about this on Achel's show, the Bloomberg TV in Turkey yesterday morning. Um, this is off the TSA website. This is airplane check-ins. And if you see in the month of April, we troughed out here at around 90,000, 87,000 check-ins on April 14th seemed to be the low. Just on Monday, and I didn't get to get a chance to pull uh, the last two days' numbers, but just on Monday alone, we were at 170,000, so near double in just a month. So, albeit it's down from 2 million last year, so it's been a huge hit, but this is slowly ticking up. And I think the magic bullet for this, and I don't know if they can do it, but if they did do it, I put out a survey on Twitter like, would you be willing to fly if masks were mandatory at the airports and mandatory? in the airplane and like 56% I think it was said yes, which is like way more. Cause if you'd ask the average person, what percentage of people do you think are willing to fly? I think most people would be like less than 10%. So it was like 56%, um, small sample of course, but I do think, you know, we've seen the Boeing CEOs and the airline CEOs, they have these HEPA filters now. Apparently the air is cleaner to breathe in the plane than it is in the airport. So, I do think that if they did something like mandatory masks in the airports and in the airplanes for the next few weeks, I think we'd see these numbers start to tick up to like 250, 500 maybe. Because in China, uh, in February, they troughed at 4 million seats in the air domestically in March, uh, excuse me, in February. And by March, they were doubled to 8 million, down from 14 the previous year, 14.7. But... Um, the other thing I discussed on Greta Wall's show on One American News Network was that they're already starting international travel with these things called travel bubbles. So China has been traveling with South Korea internationally, and now Australia uh, announced this week they're doing the same thing with New Zealand. So I think you're going to see more and more of these as people get through the flattening of their curves. Not only is domestic air travel going to pick up and you start to see it in Boeing and Southwest at the end of the week, um, their stock started to get bid, but um, you're going to see more and more countries cooperating. Maybe Canada and the U.S. will start to cooperate. Maybe Canada and Mexico, I'm not sure. But uh, this will really lead to these numbers ticking up dramatically and things slowly and steadily and safely getting back to normal. And that's also evidence here. Global air travel was up 4% this week. This, these numbers are from Sirium. So you see kind of this trough in late uh, March. And now it's starting to come back slowly but surely. Daily gas demand up 18.66% from the trough four weeks ago uh from gas buddy and you're seeing it in energy stocks okay so their energy stocks are starting to sniff out a slow and steady recovery in demand <coughs> so um 
the exploration and production sector is up 81.13% trough to recent peak um, relative to the S&P, which was you know, about 34.8%. So the outperformance was 153% outperformance for exploration and production relative to the S&P. The XLE was up 65.51. That's the larger integrateds relative to the S&P was up less than 35. So that was a 104% um, relative outperformance. And there's the S&P. So um, the market's starting to sniff out the demand. And that's also highly correlated with the reopening of the country. Um, so obviously, Florida, Texas, and Georgia have been in the news for opening up business first. But now we've got 30 states in total opening for business in some form. And by Sunday, at least 43 states will have eased some restrictions ranging from simply reopening parks to allowing more businesses to reopening reopen and you can see state by state at cnn.com uh, click on that link each state pull up and see what they've done and uh, and that's very helpful so you know the yellow ones are the ones that are hit the hardest and they're still relatively closed and slowly doing things the rest of this country is is opening so um, that is good news and the market is sniffing that out and uh, demand-related commodities, et cetera, starting to sniff that out. What about the jobs report? Uh, this was the ADP report we covered. The one thing I wanted to um, go into here is, and it was emphasized in the Goldman report, that 70% of these layoffs are going to be very temporary in nature based on the furlough, and Larry Kudlow was out today speaking about the same thing, um, look at the breakdown from the ADP payroll report. Um, only about 20% uh, were related to manufacturing and mining and construction. This construction should pick up very, very quickly. So these are pretty minimal. The big hit was in services, but where in services? Trade and tra transportation, okay? So that's airlines, et cetera. That's gonna slowly come back. Leisure and hospitality, that's 100% related to COVID uh, coronavirus. That's gonna come back slowly but surely. So that's 11 right there. And then education and healthcare. So you basically got 75%, um, so let's see, uh, nine and a half, 10, 13, 13 of 16, call it 13 of 20 total that are going to come back very, very quickly. And then a bunch of these others. So another three, at least 70, 75, you can see construction manufacturing coming back very quick. Manufacturing came back first in China. It's, it's back to literally pre-pandemic levels. So you're looking at basically 75 to 80% of these could come back within you know, months before the end of the year and the rest of them as that stimulus kicks in and starts to circulate, uh, we could get back to where we were uh, within a year, year and a half uh, for, for sure. Uh, and maybe more if the growth rate really kicks in. But it, it was exciting. I mean, obviously these are horrible and these represent people too. So this is not normal and I'm not taking this lightly. This is an economics podcast. I mean, the humanitarian side is sobering. There's no question about it. Um, and that we just all have to deal with. We have friends, we have family struggling with this stuff. Um, but on this podcast, I want to get the information to you from, you know, an investing 
opinion standpoint. And again, none of this is advice. See the terms at the top, etc. Do your own research. But this is these are my opinions about things based on the facts. So, um, so the initial jobless claims and continuing claims were slightly worse than ex, uh, expected yesterday. The ADP was slightly worse, but today the uh, numbers came in better than expected. Um, so we will go through those here. Uh, basically, they came in at negative 20.5 versus negative uh, 22 expected. And the unemployment rate was 14.7 in the short term versus 16 expected. Um, building permits were negative. Oh, I'm sorry, that's the building permits are Canada. So these were basically the numbers. The other thing that is not being talked about as much is the average hourly earnings came in towards the high end, 7.9% growth um, versus 3.3 estimated. And that a lot of this is related to the extra pay that they have to give people to show up that are frontline workers, the lower wage workers that are interfacing with the public, they have to pay them more for their safety, et cetera. And I think this is gonna be one of the numbers that's less temporary. I think what's gonna happen moving forward is if you look at productivity over the last uh, 40 years relative to wage growth, it's really diverged in the last 10 or 15 years. And I think as the economy starts to recover and all that stimulus kicks in uh, and we start to see more normalized inflation levels, I think that you're going to see it in wages first and that the low-end wage earners are going to be the early beneficiaries. Whether that will be nominal wage earnings or real remains to be seen, but uh, I do think that this is going to be a sticky number relative to these are going to normalize the... Um, middle and lower middle class people wages are actually going to hold up and probably improve and increase moving forward. So that, that'll be a silver lining to come out of this situation. Um, okay, so these are the CBO expectations, huge hit to Q2 GDP and then a bounce back negative 5.6 for the year. We covered that. Uh, they expected negative 14% I'm sorry, 14% unemployment rate for Q2. We're seeing that right now. They expect it to be 114 by the end of the year. It, I think it could bounce back sooner than that, considering that 75% of this 14% is temporary. Um, but we'll see. So maybe this gets down to high single digits. And then next year, I think they're being too conservative. I think we could see this get back to 6, 7 in, in that range would be a nice number to see. Um, okay, so we also talked about the phase four stimulus, and it was good that some of the employment numbers missed this week, even though they exceeded expectations today, because it's going to keep the Senate and the House motivated to get a phase four stimulus bill. And I think they're going to want to go big and they're going to want to do four trillion, I'm sorry, one trillion dollars, which will take the total amount of stimulus aid and liquidity to over 10 trillion to fix a one and a half trillion dollar problem. 
Uh, here are some of the things on the table, which I covered on Achill's segment on Bloomberg Turkey yesterday. Um, the Republicans want a trillion of infrastructure and building. The Democrats want 500 billion of state and municipal aid. They will go back and forth and likely the Democrats will get less than 500 billion of uh, state aid. The Republicans will get less than a trillion dollars of stimulus, but they'll come together and get a trillion dollars out and get a deal done. Some other things on the table, people have talked about monthly payments of $2,000 until the crisis begins to fade. Um, that would be up from the $1,200 payments. You know, again, none of this is decided, but these are all just trial balloons out there. Suspension of all payroll taxes. So this 2,000 a month is a democratic proposal. The suspension of payroll taxes is a Republican proposal. Negative payroll tax is a uh, Art Laffer supply side idea. That's just basically would take the place of the PPP program. Um, it's a cleaner way to do it. I doubt that gets done. There'll probably be a third round of PPP. Um, next would be reduction in capital gains rate is on the table. Uh, expand the temporary provisions from the 2017 tax bill, full expense, expensing to structures, and expansion of business deductions for meals, entertainment, and sporting events. But the most important thing that's on the table that will determine how quickly we can get back to work is liability reforms to protect workers from a rash of lawsuits believed to be aimed at them for, after the pandemic clears and businesses reopen. So people are going to get sick. That's going to happen. We're going to have a spike up of, of uh, COVID and people are going to say, see, we shouldn't have opened. But um, we have to get back to it. We flattened the curve and we got to just take that risk societally just as we made the sacrifice societally. We have, uh, we have to also get things going again. And they're going to have to trade off some liability cap for businesses opening their doors because people will get COVID, but there'll be no way to prove where they got it. So they'll say, I went to a concert and now, you know, my husband died because they went to a concert. You shouldn't have opened it or you allowed people to be five and a half feet apart. They were supposed to be six feet apart. If they had been, you know, six inches further apart, my husband wouldn't have died. I want to sue you for $20 million. And if that happens, then businesses are going to stay or, or just go out of business and go bankrupt. So I think the Democrats will get a lot of state and municipal aid. And I think the Republicans will get some type of business liability cap. And that's going to enable us to turbocharge the economy, get people back to work, get people reemployed. And that will be part of the trade. And hopefully we get some infrastructure uh, in there as well, which is bipartisan, by the way. So that, that would be really, really constructive. So we've covered the growth uh, once demand comes back. We're seeing that. The other thing I talked about banks being the most underowned sector last month in the S&P, in the Bank of America Global Fund Manager Survey. Last time that happened was July 2016. The banks doubled over, nearly doubled over the next 18 months. Um, what a lot of people are focused on and where they're so far, in my opinion, missing the opportunity in the banks, although they started to get bid in a major way this week, we're going to cover that in a second, is that while everyone focuses on net interest margin, uh, the spread between the short end of the curve and the longer end of the curve, what they borrow at and what they lend at, um, 
and also the exposure of bad long uh, loans and consumer uh, credit, et cetera. We, we know that's known. That's why some of these stocks are down 50%. That's not unknown. Um, what may be missed is the amount of fee generation that's coming in from the PPP. And uh, I don't want to get philosophical about this. I do think they should get fees for processing loans and uh, administering a huge program that takes up a lot of manpower and a lot of uh, effort. But to understand the magnitude of the fees, um, for, for the first $300 billion, it was about $10 billion of fees spread up amongst all the uh, big banks and all of the um, local banks. So that's $10 billion of earnings power that wouldn't have been there, and they're assuming very little risk. Uh, on on these loans, so that's all processing fees. That's all straight to the bottom line. There's another 300 billion out. Half of it's already been drawn on. So expect, uh, but you're going to get less of the larger loans that they make one percent on, and more of the smaller loans because now people are being have to be disclosed who's taking the money. So the big players aren't going to take the money. It's going to be all the mom and pop shops. Um, which are going to be three or five percent. So I would imagine the second round, rather than being 10 billion of fees, uh, I see as earnings in Q2 for the banks in the aggregate, will probably be closer to 12 to 15 billion. So you're looking at 22 to 25 billion dollars of earnings that would not have been there uh, coming. That we'll start to see in Q2 earnings in in earnest, and likely in. Uh, phase four of the stimulus plans will get another couple hundred billion of PPP. So when all is said and done, I would imagine in the first, uh, in the second quarter, there could be as much as $30 billion of earnings power to the banking sector in aggregate from the PPP program that very few people are focused on. And I think it's going to hit like a tsunami when we see it in the earnings and what happens to the banking sector, which is the least loved, uh, the most underowned, And I think we're going to see some very constructive things come out of that. So, uh, yeah, we own banks. Yeah, we're buyers of banks. And uh, and now they're starting to rip in the last week and a half. So uh, there's still some that are lagging behind that uh, can be had at a good, good value in, in our view. Um, but uh, no one's talking about this 20 to $30 billion that's going to drop to the bottom line of the sector. So um, we'll talk about that in a second. Next is the shorter term view of the AAII sentiment survey this week. It actually, despite the fact that the market was, did okay, a uh, level of fear came into the market again. Bearishness shot up to an extreme over 50, 52.66. And bullish dropped down to the low 20s, which is also an extreme that usually marks short-term bottoms when you get bearishness this high and bullishness this high. And then we saw that in the last two days, the market's ripped. So um, we're going to talk about that in our Ask Me Anything section because someone emailed me about just that question um, and how that can mark short-term bottoms even though we've run up this whole way while other indicators are saying the other thing. So we'll discuss that. CNN fear and greed. This was way down here. If you remember a few weeks ago, uh, fear started to thaw. It was 46 last week. It also came into 40. So there was fear built up this week. Uh, and then next is the National Association of Active Investment Managers. 
they finally jumped from 43, uh, 45% to 78.55% this week. They're chasing after a 35% rally. Um, you can look at the notes for the last three weeks. I said active managers will have to regain exposure in coming weeks as the worst of the new news starts to move into the rearview mirror. So we're seeing that, you know, 5 million unemployment claims, 4 million this week, 3 million. Um, and they're chasing here now. So you saw the same thing in 2018. They were chasing finally after here and the, the move still had a long way to go. Um, they're underweight and that's just what happens. The boat got too crowded pessimist and now they've got to chase. Um, the message for the week is the same as it was the last few weeks. We were aggressive buyers of high quality equities that were trading at 40 to 60% discounts in mid-March to early April. You can look up all of our old notes on a week by week basis and chart them against the S&P. If you want, uh, click on sentiment or click on commentary under categories and you can see each weekly article. Um, so we've shifted our focus where we, a lot of those equities have had huge moves. Um, there are still pockets that we can add into and we'll uh, talk about them. Some of the financials are still available at good prices. We've been mostly focused on um, high yield credit, distressed credit, which is not recovered to the same extent as equities have. And we're following the same model that we suggested when we were buying equities in March and early April. On red days, we were buyers, net buyers. On green days, we sit on our hands and do nothing and don't chase. So that's that. Now we're going to move on to uh, something we've been talking about for the last few weeks, which is the rotation or the broadening of the rally, which is very nice to see. Tech continues to do well, but if you look at it, Small caps, which have always been underperforming of late in material ways, now have outperformed. So they're up trough to peak 37, 37% what, relative to the S&P, which was up under 35%. That's the Russell 2000. Next, we have the uh, banking index, the KBE, was up 40.57% uh, trough to peak relative to the S&P, was up less than 35 and the home builders uh, are just crushing it. Again, nothing like what we've seen in energy off the bottom, um, but um, up 53.49%, and they continue to follow through today, trough to peak, relative to the S&P less than 35. So we're seeing a huge broadening. Everyone's focused on the top five tech stocks, <coughs> but these sectors that no one's focused on, energy, home builders, small caps, and now banks are uh, really starting to outperform relative to the indices. So keep an eye and see if that rotation persists. It's continued to do so pretty much every up day for the last week and a half, two weeks, and we've been tweeting that out if you've been paying attention. So I um, hope that's been helpful. Next is um, we've, we've, part of our bullish thesis for the last four weeks, we've been talking on all of our media hits, is that we're a couple of months behind China in the recovery. Their cases peaked on February 5th. Our cases peaked about two and a half weeks ago. And uh, here they are, May 8th. So 
three months after their peak cases and their auto sales reached around 2 million vehicles last month, which is 1% greater than the 1.98 million vehicles sold in April of 2019. So they're actually doing better this year than they did last year after getting through the trauma uh, that we're just getting through the midst of here in the United States. Uh, they got through a couple of months ago and they're already exceeding last year's business. That is mind-boggling and very nice to see. We've covered numerous times how their seats in the air have doubled, their rush hour traffic is at pre-pandemic levels, their energy demand has gone from 10 million barrels a day to over 12 million last month. It probably, in March rather, in April, it's probably 13 or 14, I have to look it up, but they're um, getting close to uh, pre-pandemic levels. Their coal burning at the energy plants is pre-pandemic levels. So this this really has the ability to bounce back very, very quickly. And it's hard to see when you're in the middle of it, but uh, the numbers are starting to show it globally. And we covered some of that demand in, in the main article that we just covered. Uh, next item here is the... Uh, some of the sectors that are lagging that I thought was interesting as well, you're seeing it in unusual options activity. So you saw Schlumberger, but you're seeing it in financials. So a lot of the insurers, like I covered about Warren Buffett, even Berkshire's down. I think that's attractive here. Um, we have that for our trade service. Um, that was put out after it got sold off after the annual meeting, pessimism or perceived pessimism. Uh, insiders, uh, Robert Scully, who's a director, uh, bought a bunch of, uh, I, th I think it looks like about $2 million worth, uh, sorry, a million dollars worth of Chubb stock this week. Uh, another smaller, um, uh, small regional bank here in New York, I think it's Staten Island, Northfield Bank. Uh, this guy bought a bunch of stock and there was one other... EIG, not AIG, another ins small insurer uh, insider was buying, the CEO was buying a ton of stock as well. So in these beaten down stocks, you, these guys who know the value of their companies are, you're seeing a lot more of these laggard sectors, the smart money in them buying up their own stock, whether it's energy um, and particularly financials, insurance and, and banks. Uh, keep a continued eye on that. Next subject is uh, just following up with energy. The rig count now came in at, uh, it was a low number. Here it is, 292. I mean, the lowest levels since September 2009, off the peak levels of 1,600 in 2014. So this is huge, guys and gals. Uh, the surest way to cure low oil prices is with low oil prices. It's happening. You're going to see in the next 12 to 18 months. Yes, you've got tons of tankers out at sea. I understand that completely. But it's much slower to turn them on, on than to turn them off. And you also have 9.6 million barrel cuts this week, this month, next month. 
then it drops down to 7.6, and then it goes to 5.6, and it goes for two years, fella, uh, ladies and gentlemen, to April 2022. These cuts are continue. No one's really focused on that. They keep emphasizing the cuts for two two months, the 9.6, but the real story is that it's two years of cuts. So um, I'm sure they will have to abort those sooner than they expect as the prices go well above $60, $70 in the next two years. But anyway... We just take it day by day. You know, prices will spike up to 50. All the ships will unload. We'll probably shoot back down to 40, high 30s. And then you'll have the lack of investment show up in 2021. There haven't hasn't been investment in major projects for five years, capital investment. And, you know, um, it'll be very similar in my view to the early 2000s. So, you know, we're seeing it now. We've been you know, building positions since October. We got hit with coronavirus, but they're ripping back like crazy. We have natural gas stocks that we started buying a year ago that went against us and we just kept buying down and down and down and now we're up 40, 50% from their basis. It's mind boggling. Like I thought they would just, you know, bite the dust. But with all the rigs off on the oil side, uh, plays in the Marcellus are just ripping because you're not going to get all that gas off the oil uh, oil wells and that's going to keep the pure play natural gas plays now running the ones that have had conservative enough balance sheets can really start to uh not start i mean some of them are up 100 some odd percent off the bottom but continue to fly so that that's exciting to see um just taking a long-term view like i said in recent weeks time is your hedge if your analysis is correct you can you can add if you're just gambling off of squiggly lines that's the wrong play but if your analysis is solid time is your hedge and and we're seeing these this sector rotation now and we're going to keep an eye on it all these unloved sectors banks energy uh insurance companies as part of financials home builders over the next two years i think there's going to be a lot of money made made there and it doesn't necessarily have to be at the expense of tech um it can just be a broadening of the market, but I think on a relative basis, we're going to see some real excitement come back over the next 12 to 18 months. So very excited about that. Last few subjects here. Uh, and Oh, okay. Now we're going to go to Ask Me Anything. This was a great question. Every day in your... Hedge, daily hedge fund tips and that's free for anyone that wants it you get your reads of the day and your insider activity and your video and all this free stuff um ask me anything each weekend we, we put out a video cast podcast discussing current market trends outlook and recapping the important developments in the stock market we've added a new feature each east each week called Ask Me Anything, where we'll answer up to five questions sent in by our audience at the end of the VideoCast podcast. If you have questions for this episode, please reply to this email with your question, and it may be included at the end of this week's show. So this week, we chose a question from Benjamin, and his question was, Hey, Tom, you wrote yesterday that the AAII at 23.67, which we covered on the uh, bullish percent and 52.66 on the bearish sentiment percents are generally found near short-term bottoms. Well, we saw that in the last two days, they ripped off those levels. But your 
429 indicator of the day video regarding the put call ratio it says ratios below 80 are generally short term bearish. Yesterday's CBC ratio was 83. It's likely to be approximately 80 at today's close. Please help me reconcile the above conflict. So Benjamin, great question. So let's take a look at what he's talking about. Uh, this is the AAII bullish percent down here. And you can see when it gets to these levels, um, you tend to get upward movement relative to downward movement. So here you got a huge rally. Here was the a bottom, you got this huge bounce. Here you got a bounce. Here it was a little early, then you got this rip roaring rally. This was high 20s, so that's not really a good indicator. Here you had a short term against you, but then a, a big rally. Um, so, you know, here you had a big rally after, you know, bullishness got down to that level. So that obviously works. Now, here's bearishness. AAII bears above 50. Has that been a good time to get long? Uh, here, yes. Here, yeah, damn right, 35% rally. Excuse my language. Uh, this one didn't even get to 50. Yes, that was a good time to get long. This one at 50, great time to get long. Uh, and we don't have any other extremes, but even in the 40s, you know, it starts to bottom out at that level of pessimism. So look at this. We're, we're People are so pessimistic here, and that's why it can continue to climb this wall of worry. Obviously, we have to digest some 35% here. So we, we, we've done that for a couple weeks sideways. So we'll see. I mean, that's very, very interesting. Uh, now, how does that relate to the put-call ratio? Again, I don't um, trade off indicators per se. Most of our analysis is fundamentally based. We use these as barometers and we use them. And the reason there are a hundred some odd instructional videos, and by the way, you can view them all for free. If you're learning, just go to categories. Once, well, by the way, we email them out one a day, every day. So you can just go here and put your first name and email and you get all this stuff for free. Uh, secondly, you can click on market indicators video. You click on that category and all the videos come up and you can just go through a few every day uh, and learn. But um, they're about 400. So we have about 20 or 30 we look at on a daily, weekly basis just to get a feel for where things are. Not a, it is this number and therefore this must happen. That can't be that way because if that was that way, uh, an algo would just game it and it would be like a slot machine. Once you had the algo programmed, you're guaranteed to have it. So they're like, they're barometers. It's like horseshoes. It's not like surgery. Um, so he's saying that it's going to close below 0.8. So that, you know, that's a very short term thing. Uh, and he says that's bearish. It depends. You could be in a trending market. So, for instance, particularly, and this is a trick that I learned through a long time. By the way, if this gets cut off for you on the podcast, go to the website hedgefundtips.com. You can watch the video cast and catch the last five or ten minutes if this runs over. Um, but for those of you on the video cast, don't worry about it. We're just going to keep going here. But you see in a trending market here, when it got... Um, so here below 
this was a short term below 0.8 short term you got a little bit of a correction it was an extreme amount of complacency uh, here at 0.73 you got a big correction after that uh, here at 0.78 so you had this and then you got into a trending market and it really didn't matter got under 80 and it just stayed under 80 and and it just kept taking the shorts out to the woodshed so in a trending market that won't work um, until it finally did and then you got this huge huge sell-off and then you start to look at the other side when it gets over 1.25 is that a time to start to get exposure and here it was too early so it's really a barometer where are we at are people complacent or are people scared to death usually scared to death on the short-term chops you can get nice bounces here you're coming off such an extreme level and the market's just starting to trend same thing here this was an extreme level you were coming off of and the market was just starting to trend so it can stay pinned below this 0.80 for a while again you want to have five or ten of these that you constantly look at you know put call uh, national association of active investment managers a bunch of these volume os 